Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So it's obviously been a while since we've been back in the Sermon on the Mount since before Holy Week, and unfortunately we'll have to shut it down again soon for summer and pick it back up in the fall. But before we get into our summer preaching uh, schedule, I did want us to um, get us to a good stopping point in our main sermon series here at TCPC, because I did leave us hanging a bit the last time I did preach from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me uh, quickly, it has been a while, so let me quickly review what I've argued is that the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, should be viewed as the manifesto of the revolution that is the kingdom of God led by King Jesus himself. He begins with the Beatitudes, which I argued are less the commands of his kingdom and more the posture or the culture of his kingdom. He helps us uh, imagine a, a subversive world that functions in counterintuitive ways from the world as we know it. And then he tells his followers, you are the salt and light of the world. You who embody these beatitudes are what our decaying and dark world desperately needs. But then there comes the question of the law. Up until this point, the law given to Moses served as the manifesto of God's people. So Jesus is organizing his kingdom under the manifesto of the Sermon on the Mount. Does that do away with the Old Testament law? Absolutely not. In fact, as we saw in the last Sermon on the Mount uh, sermon that I preached, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Not reject it, not replace it, uh, not improve it, but to fulfill it. That's where we left off. Now in the section that is before us, Jesus is going to show us what he means by fulfillment of the law. I do intend to go through each of these examples separately because each of them deserves uh, special attention. But first, I think it'd be helpful for us to speak broadly to the greater point that Jesus is making here. Each of them begins with this refrain. You have heard it said this, but I say to you this. Before we get into the details of the section, we must understand what Jesus means by that repeated refrain. And I want to discuss it in three ways. We're going to look at the law's author, the law's accusation, and the law's ambition. So author, accusation, ambition. Let's start with the author of the law. There's an incredibly brazen claim hidden here in our passage, and it's found in these five words. But I say to you, I say to you. I cannot overemphasize the significance of that statement. 
especially since he is seemingly saying it in contrast to God's law. As we will see in a moment, Jesus doesn't quote exclusively from the law, but consider the significance of these examples. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you. And then you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Okay, we're dealing with Ten Commandments there. This is, this is uh, the holy ground of God's holy law. And Jesus has the audacity to say, the Ten Commandments say this, but I say this. Who does he think he is? He thinks he's God, is the answer. I say to you is an entirely unique religious claim. Every major religion was founded by a supposed prophet who says, God has told me to say to you. That's not how we are to view Jesus. His foundational religious claim was not, thus saith the Lord, but I say to you. So don't ever let someone tell you that Jesus did not claim to be God just because we don't have a verse where he says explicitly, I am God. The reason we don't have such an explicit verse is that he didn't bother to say it or even defend it. He just assumed it and acted like it. And this is what he's doing here in our passage. And I think what's most shocking if you think about it is that he actually pulled it off. Again, every major religion is founded by revelation from God, but Jesus views himself and his words as revelation of God. And amazingly, that unique revelation actually has endured. Others have tried it. There have been plenty of cults led by delusional leaders claiming to be God, but they never work. And of course they don't work. You can pull off conventional religion based on a claim that you've heard from God, but nobody can pull off a religion based on the claim that I am God, except for Jesus. And so in the spirit of respect for my uh, friends who have yet to accept Jesus as their God, the challenge before you is that the most significant person in human history does claim to be your God. You're simply not allowed to dismiss him like you can other religions. You can't say, I like his teachings, but I'm not going to make him my God because the central teaching is that he is your God. You can't say, I like his example, but I'm not going to make him my God because his central example is acting as if he is your God. You see, you kind of have to be all in or all out when it comes to Jesus. Reject him or embrace him. Those are the options he left the world. Now, I could give you compelling reasons why I think you should embrace him. Most significantly, the evidence from history that he is risen from the dead. That's why he was able to pull it off, right? The reason he is not buried and forgotten along with all the other madmen claiming to be God is because he actually is not buried at all. But more than reasonable argumentation, I would like to appeal to your heart. Jesus claims to be your God. I would love for you to read through his life, observe his character, behold his love, see him for yourself with this question in mind, is this not the God you want? If so, then I turn to evidence and say to you, I've got good news for you, the God you want to be true is the God that is true. 
That's how it works for most people. Philosopher Blaise Pascal says this, make men and women wish Christianity were true and then show them that it is true. That's typically how conversion works. Most followers of Jesus first find themselves wanting Jesus to be true, and then there are good arguments to show you that what you want to be true is true. So first study Jesus to find out if you want him. Then, if he wins you over, and I think he will, study the evidence and discover that what you want to be true is true. Now what all this means for interpreting our passage this morning is that we should not read these verses as, you have heard God say this, but I'm saying this. Rather, it's, you interpreted what I said before a certain way, but this is what I actually meant when I said that. The author of the law is interpreting the law for us. He isn't doing away with it. He isn't tweaking it. He isn't even further developing it. He's exposing it in its truest meaning. And when we view the law according to the author of the law, the way he wants us to view it, then the law does what it was intended to do. Let's go there next. The law's accusation. Now we get into the details of the examples Jesus chooses here. What he is critiquing is how the law was being used by the religious establishment of his day. And the way it was being used was a means of self-justification. This self-justification is manifested in different ways in our passage. One way is to reduce the law to the letter of the law while neglecting the heart of the law. So, for example, 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, easy enough. I just won't kill anyone, and I don't have to worry about judgment. I have justified myself according to the letter of the law. But then he says in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The author of the law cares about the heart behind the law as much as the letter of the law. Internal obedience as much as external obedience. He does it again with adultery, verses 27 and 28. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, easy enough. I could pull that off and justify myself before the law. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Okay, never mind. You see, we can't go by the letter of the law to justify ourselves. Nor can we go by a misinterpretation of the law. For example, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Old Testament law had a high view of marriage, which protected women um, being treated as a commodity within the patriarchy. In that time, women were used, abused, and just cast aside. But according to Israel's law, men couldn't do that. They were bound by covenant to their wives. But there was a small caveat in Deuteronomy 24 that allowed for a certificate of divorce in the case of, quote-unquote, indecency. Now, that indecency was meant to be interpreted as sexual immorality. But through the years, scribes conveniently got very loose with that interpretation. Certificates of divorce would be handed out for just about anything that a husband says was indecent. Thus, the opposite of the law 
was being practiced, as women were just cast aside for really any reason. And so Jesus says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. He's rebuking their misinterpretation of the law. And this is also what we are tempted to do with God's law. Those areas that we disagree with Or actually, a better way to say that would be uh, those areas that disagree with us. We twist, we bend, we reinterpret, we misinterpret to force the Scriptures to no longer disagree with us. And in this way, we justify ourselves before the law by manipulating the law so that it only always agrees with us. And then if all else fails, we'll just change the law to justify ourselves. For example, in 43, Jesus says... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If hate your enemy seems to be a strange part of God's law, that's because it's not in God's law. Through centuries of religious tradition, hate your enemy was added to that famous love your neighbor command. And of course it was added to justify their hatred of others. So justifying ourselves by adding to the law. And so whether it's the letter of the law or misinterpreting the law or even just rewriting the law, all these maneuvers are a way to avoid the accusation of the law. But in each instance, Jesus brings us back to the true meaning of his law. And when he does this, When we stand before the law as Jesus intends for us to stand before the law, the law does with us what it is intended to do to us. It humbles us. All forms of self-justification are brought to nothing before the true meaning of the law. And when self-justification is off the table, all the humbled sinner has left to do is plead for Christ's justification. I can't escape the law's condemnation. Jesus, will you rescue me from it? I can't justify myself before your law. Would you, in your mercy, justify me? I want you to know that Jesus has never turned down that request. Not once. It's a humbling thing to stand before the accusation of God's law, but it's a good thing. Because when you accept Jesus as Lord of the law, you are made ready for Jesus as Savior from the law. And it's that salvation that yields the truest meaning of the the law. Let's close by looking at the law's ambition. We talk about the death of Jesus a lot, as we should. But we need to talk about his life more than we do. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to his own law. Not just the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. Can you imagine such purity? Of course, not murder, the letter of the law, but never a trace of hatred in his heart for another. Of course, not adultery, but never a hint of lust in himself. Yes, of course, he never swore by what is false, but he never had one deceptive thought. I couldn't get over the idea of his inner purity while meditating on this passage. What must it be like? The peace, the joy, the freedom, the contentment of a spotless inner life. We can't even imagine it. 
But that's what he had, a heart of obedience to the heart of the law. He alone is able to justify himself before his own law. Say what you will about Jesus, but unless you have an agenda against him because of um, something against Christianity, maybe justifiably so, religious trauma or something like that, unless you have something where you are bent towards an agenda against Jesus, the one thing you can't do is critique his character. You know, it's fascinating to observe in our deeply divided society. Both sides think Jesus is on their side. And there's a reason for that. Because both, of our, both sides of our divide are disproportionately focused on different aspects of morality. And both find in Jesus an affirmation of that focus. What's that tell you? He embodies the totality of morality. Jesus alone could stand before God's holy demands and survive that examination. Jesus alone can justify himself, and yet his life ended not in justification, but condemnation. Let me quote again from him in 22, verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus never had unrighteous anger toward anyone. So why is he liable to judgment? What has he done? Nothing. He has done nothing. It's what I have done. It's what you have done. The one with perfect obedience is condemned for our disobedience. And this we know, right? We need to hear it every week, but we know it. Even if you're somewhat unfamiliar with Christianity, you probably know that we believe Jesus died for us. But what is less familiar and equally important is that Jesus lived for us. He not only died the death we should have died, he lived the life we should have lived. So if on the cross he takes the consequences of our disobedience, well then what happens to the reward of his obedience? Brothers and sisters, that reward is his gift to you. He receives our flawed disobedience and gives to you his perfect obedience. You can't justify yourself before God's law, but Jesus can. And his justification is his gift to you, and I do mean it as a gift. Jesus did not sin to receive your sins. We do not do righteous to receive his righteousness. His obedience to the law is free unmerited, undeserved gift of sheer grace. And Christian, it really does belong to you. God does not see your sins. Those are forever condemned and buried in the tomb that he walked out of. God does not see your disobedience. All he sees is Christ's obedience. Let me state it as scandalously as I can. You don't have to obey God's law. Jesus did already. Period. You don't have to obey. No qualifications. You don't have to obey God's law for God to love you. Now hold on, preacher. And say these things. Parents are squirming right now. Kids, don't listen to that part of the sermon. But our uncomfortableness with such scandalous grace is rooted in this fallacy. Only fear can get us to obey. That is a lie. 
there is a motivator even more powerful than fear. It is called love. I've done a lot of weddings. And when I stand at the altar of holy matrimony and bride and groom recite vows of unconditional love, not one time has one of those spouses responded to those vows like this. Did I just hear that right? Did you just promise to love me with unconditional love no matter what, no matter the circumstances, better, worse, rich or poor, sickness or in health, to love until cherished till death to his part? That's what you're pledging to me? Yes, of course, I love you. I've got you. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to love you. I can even make your life miserable because you promise to love and cherish till death do us part. Nobody responds that way to covenant of unconditional love. Instead, it does the opposite. On August 26, 2006, Abby told me, I am yours forever. I love you forever. You do not have to fear losing me, which made me want to spend the rest of my life loving her. Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus told us we never have to fear condemnation from God for our disobedience. That news, rightly internalized, produces a people who want to spend the rest of their life in obedience to God. And in this way, the truest meaning of the law, indeed the fulfillment of the law, comes to pass. We don't have to obey. Now we want to obey. The law that once was the source of our condemnation has become our ambition. Paul says it like this. You are not under law. You are under grace. You are not under the law. I meant what I said. You don't have to obey God's law for God to love you. But you are under his grace. The grace of Jesus who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died His grace, not His law, is now in charge of you. And what that grace forges in those who do not have to obey is a profound desire to obey. The law is not necessary when obedience is what you genuinely want. I'll give you another illustration because it's important for us to conceptualize this. Of course, it is written in the laws of our nation that murder is illegal. But unless... Uh, You're a sociopath here this morning. You don't need that law. Because at the end of the day, you love your fellow humanity at least enough not to murder them. You don't love them enough to obey God's law, which considers hatred in your heart. But you do love them enough to obey the laws of our nation. So in a sense, you are not under that law. You don't need that law. But there are some laws you do because you don't want to obey them. When I'm running late, the only reason I drive at safe speeds is out of fear of getting a speeding ticket. I want to speed, but I don't want to get in trouble, so I obey. I usually obey the speed limit, not out of love, but out of fear. Okay, when Paul says you are not under law, but under grace, he is saying that something has fundamentally shifted in your heart to where God's law is to you, like our nation's laws against murder, not speed limits. In a very real sense, we do not need to be told to obey. You now want to obey. Now, do we obey? Of course not. The law is our ambition, but we do not claim perfection. There remains an infuriating duplicity within us, right? Paul says in Romans 7, For I have the desire to do what is right. I want to obey. 
but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Every single follower of Jesus knows what that's like. Call us hypocrites? Correct. Guilty as charged. We are. But we don't want to be. We hate our hypocrisy. It's the greatest source of trouble in our lives. We want to obey more than anything else. We desire what Jesus speaks of here. We don't want to have hatred in our hearts. We don't want to have lust in our hearts. We don't want to swear by what is false. We don't want to retaliate against our enemies. Everything Jesus says here and everywhere else, we want to obey because we want to please our Savior. The ambition to please Jesus, purchased by the grace of Jesus, is the fulfillment of the law of Jesus. And one day, we will have what we so desperately want. Finally and forever, we will get to obey Jesus. That character that we behold in Jesus, not just his external but his internal perfection, that character that belongs to us vicariously now in Jesus will belong to us experientially forevermore. We will be raised immortal and incorruptible and we will never, ever, ever, ever sin again. And I can't wait. Until then, let's spend our days relentlessly trying to become what we are destined to be. Let's fulfill the law. Let's obey the God that we love. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we want to obey. Forgive our disobedience. We long to be more like you. Forgive our duplicity. Would you use now this sacrament as a visible representation of what you have done to justify us. Would you use it to nourish us with your grace and may that grace capture our hearts such that we would want to obey you even more. We love you, Jesus. Make us more like you, we pray in your name. Amen.